Hi, I'm Delaney. Hi, I'm Sam, and this is our podcast, You're a Psychopath. Debunking inaccurate media portrayals of psychopathy. On this week's episode, we will be discussing a TED Talk and a documentary that focus on psychopathy. The TED Talk is titled Strange Answers to the Psychopathy Test by John Ronson, and the documentary is Psychopath with Piers Morgan. The TED Talk with John Ronson was made in March 2012. He's a writer and a filmmaker, and he also has a book called The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry, which is not... (laughs) Love that word. Not a good book, because it talks about psychopathy is a hoax. If you... You can look up the book description. It's not good. (laughs) Anyway... At the beginning of John Ronson's TED Talk, he makes light of serious mental disorders in his presentation, and he starts making jokes about diagnosing himself with 12 different disorders because he took a skim through the DSM. Yeah. yeah. Which already makes him problematic and makes me not want to believe anything that he says. Again, it's just like, I get he's trying to, like, be funny, like, make satire, and, like, potentially poke fun at people who do think they can self-diagnose like that. But it's also, like, I feel like there's a fine line between making fun of but also contributing to that narrative that that's okay if that makes sense yeah yeah and he pretty much like right off the bat goes to tell this story about this guy that he met at an institution called Broadmoor but even before that he prefaces with the idea that to get further into the understanding of psychopathy and like learn more about it instead of going to the experts he goes to the Scientologists yeah Which Which I thought was a joke, but I guess it wasn't. (laughs) Right. Like, he was more willing to listen to the ideas of the Scientologists to show that people can fake an insanity plea, which is what is claimed this guy did. And I'm, like, well aware of the fact that, like, people think the insanity plea is used in court, like, all the time. But it's not. It's super rare. Only 1% of all felony cases. And also extremely difficult to prove that you're insane. Like, Mm -hmm. people don't win insanity cases. The prevalence of winning is, like, 24%. Yeah. So it's not easy to do that. So the fact that he, like, discusses the ease of the guy, his name is Tony, the ease of him, like, faking insanity to avoid a criminal sentence and, like, being successful is, one, misleading, and two, like makes people believe and think that, like, one, it happens often, and two, it's easy to do. Yeah, and I think that's definitely, like, an effect of all the popular crime shows that are on today is that that's a major thing that they'll portray, and it completely contributes to the narrative that, like, insanity pleas happen often, and when they do happen, the person's successful in getting that plea, which, as Sam mentioned, that is not the case at all. So he tells this story about Tony, the guy's name is Tony, and says that he faked madness to get into Broadmoor, and his sentence would have been five years, but because he faked madness, quote-unquote, and was sent to Broadmoor, he had been in Broadmoor, I think, for 12 years when Ronson interviewed him. There's something like, oh, like, an inmate told him, like, yo, you could get out of it by, like, pleading insanity. Right. But then, like, instead he got institutionalized. Right, which is what happens. You can't get away with crime. like, you just leave. (laughs) Right, like, you don't just get away with a crime because you plead insanity. Like, you get sent to a place that can get you help. You don't just get away with your crime. Like, that's not how that works. Insane. A lot of people think that. And when he's talking about Tony and his first interactions with Tony, he uses this phrase, classic psychopath, which makes 
absolutely no sense. Mm -mm. And he talks about classic psychopath in terms of Tony was wearing a pinstripe suit. Mm -hmm. And him wearing the pinstripe suit was specifically related to two items on the PCLR. Glibness and superficial charm and inflated sense of self-worth. Which, that... What do you mean? Yeah. Because he's wearing a pinstripe suit, automatically he's glib and superficially charming and, like, full of himself? It honestly is, like, I don't know if confirmation bias is the right word. No, but something like that. But, like, because he's known, he knows that people have diagnosed this dude as a psychopath. Everything this guy does. No, he was never diagnosed as a psychopath. He's, He's calling him a psychopath. He, John Ronson, is calling him a psychopath. Yeah, and he, because Tony tells him that other people in the institution have told him he's a psychopath, but he never okay. confirms whether or not that's the doctor. Well, even so then, he could be. I mean, he could but be, But even I guess. then, it's just the idea of John Ronson being like, oh, like, people are telling him he's a psychopath? Like, right. let me, let me, let me pathologize everything that he does and everything he wears to right. confirm this belief that he's a psychopath. And, like, Ronson's criteria for, like, being able to say that he can, like, do this, oh he calls it in the video... A psychopath spotting course. That does not exist. Which that is not real. You can't spot psychopaths. It's That's not a thing. And it just holds so much dangerous rhetoric. Like, yeah, psychopath. I'm a psychopath spotter. It's like... <laughs> I'm it's a certified like, psychopath spotter. It's like the, the crazy book writers that we talked about in yeah. the last episode that were just like, oh... Psychopath hunters. Yeah, I'm a psychopath hunter. Like, that doesn't exist. What he's talking about is a PCLR training program that is not conducted by Robert Hare anymore, but was made by Robert Hare, who's like the resident expert on psychopathy. It's a two to three day workshop, but you only receive a document of attendance. You don't, you're not certified to administer the PCLR because you need a PhD to purchase it. But this course is open to researchers who want to learn more about it and how it's administered, but it does not mean you're qualified to administer the PCLR or try and assess anyone for psychopathy. Also, didn't he only go to, like, one session? Yeah, he went to one <laughs> session. So he probably didn't even get the certificate no. of attendance. <laughs> but he's using this as, like, a, oh, I know a yeah. lot about psychopathy because I went to, like, one-third of Hare's PCLR course. Yeah. Like definitely, like, lay people who are probably watching this, like... Believe him. Believe him. If oh, I, yeah. like, didn't know anything about psychopathy and, like... Robert Hare and all that, I would eat everything this guy was saying. I would eat it up. Because he just made it seem like he was certified and he knew what he was doing. And the tricky thing, too, is if you don't understand what psychopathy is, you wouldn't know, but because we're, like, aware of it, Uh he never fully describes psychopathy in his entire 18-minute TED Talk. He He never talks about it. He brings up, like, some of the traits of the of psychopathy from Hare's checklist, but even then he doesn't really go into the actual details. Yeah, he keeps details. everything very surface level. Uh-huh. And then he tells another story after he, like, he has this, like, these background-like pictures, and as he's talking about the PCLR, like, the list of traits, like, comes up almost in a checklist, mm-hmm. which I did not like. Okay. I mean, it's called the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, but, like, you don't just check a box. No. And he talks about going to visit a businessman in Florida. Oh, my God. And I think his name is Mr. Dunlap. Yes. And after walking around his property, he kind of tells this guy, oh, like some people would consider you a psychopath. And then he takes out the list of traits and goes through them with Mr. Dunlap and even starts letting him rate himself on traits like short-term marital relationships and juvenile delinquency. Like he just takes it out and goes, glibness and superficial mm-hmm. charm. And the guy is like, well. Yeah. He's like relating it all back to business. Yeah. Which plays into the idea of like all CEOs are psychopaths, mm-hmm. which is also not true. But even then it's like Dunlap would be like, oh, like, no, I haven't really, I've had only two marriages. 
I didn't really have any type of juvenile delinquency. And Ronson says, like, I found myself, like, really forcing this guy to fit these boxes. Oh, yeah. And it's just yeah. like, well, you're not even trained to do this. Right, so <laughs> why are you are trying? You like, that's like if I was like, I just took the checklist and like tried to diagnose everyone I know. Like, that, it really just doesn't make any sense. No. I don't get why he was doing that. No. Well, no, it's because he was writing a book. And he right. thought it would be like a good story for the book. And then he proceeds to make this like statement that statistics show that there's 1,500 people in the room, so that means 15 <laughs> of you are probably psychopaths. Yeah. But perhaps because the prevalence rates go up for CEOs and business leaders, it's more likely that 30 to 40 people in the audience are psychopaths. Oh which you God. can't... Stop. What? Stop. <laughs> that makes no sense. Where is he getting the statistics about corporate psychopaths? Right. I don't know. Does he reference it? No, he doesn't. No. So Where, he... Where's the references? <laughs> Where are Where the, are the sources? <laughs> And I don't know why so many people who, like, don't fully understand psychopathy try to bring up the prevalence rates anytime they can. Like, the people that wrote the books did that, and they were like... Maybe to, like, make lay people think that this is an issue they should care about and, like, be interested about or Or that it's, like, more common than it is. Yeah. But, like, it's not. If the prevalence rate is 1%, that's not... But I think then they're like, well, it's just for incarcerated populations. Who knows about... It's because no one, like, can distinctly say that, like, there are X amount of corporate psychopaths. People just, well, like, right. make up a number. Right. And, like, try to make lay people think that it's a bigger deal than it is. It's so, I, I don't understand yeah. why people but bring it up so often. He is a journalist. He's a writer. Yep. You know, like, yep. there is that tendency for him just to find a good story to write about. Well, right. And then, so towards the end of his talk, because he's a journalist and, again, not a trained psychologist... At the end of his talk, he mentions, like, picking out gems or abnormalities in people, and that's what becomes the focus of the person they're going to write about. Oh, which yeah. is why, like, like at, at, in Florida, when he met Mr. Dunlap, he was, like, reaching and trying to grab uh-huh. out, like, the psychopathic traits, which he doesn't know how to assess anyway. But because you're looking for the extreme ends of a person yeah. and not the overall picture, that's who you want to paint as a journalist because that's more interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It's ironic that he's, like, trying to discuss psychopathy and, like, issues with scoring, but he's, like, trying to score this dude. Yeah. He's just, like, contributing to yeah. why psychopathy is so misunderstood. Right. And why there's so many false conceptualizations of it, and it's because he's, like, he he admits, he's, like, yeah, I'm just reaching for these, like, craziest parts right. to define them. Right. He's, like, oh, I shouldn't but be then, doing that. But it's, like, eh. He also, like... When he's talking about Tony, and he tells some, like, weird story about an article that Tony read and that, like, that made him, like, seem crazy. Something about the U.S. government training bees to, like, sniff out explosives. He read that article, and then he said that. And And then Ronson said that he saw the clinician's notes... That wrote down like thinks bees can sniff out explosives. How, he can't yeah. see those. <laughs> like you cannot. That's a lie. Yeah. There's no way he got access to Tony's files. Not a chance. I'm surprised they even let him in. To be honest, I don't understand. to the institution. Yeah, I don't know. And then he also says that like everything he thought was normal about Tony were suddenly the things that made him a psychopath. Which is one setting the example that a one-time interaction can be proof that someone's psychopathic. But two. He's pinstripe suits are normal. They shouldn't be psychopathic. Not even that. Just like he's talking about any interaction he had with him, he was pathologizing. Yeah, which is wrong, (laughs) wrong, and not something that you should do. And then when he conceptualizes his like conning and manipulative behavior, he uses Tony and says that Tony faking madness was the criteria that made him psychopathic because he was being conning and manipulative. Again, it really is ignoring the 
as we said in our first episode of the importance of these traits to be persistent yeah, and pervasive pervasive and and Ronson's completely pathologizing Tony based on a one-time interaction slash the idea of like him hearing that like this dude might actually be a psychopath right right and interestingly enough Robert Hare came out, Robert Hare and a bunch uh. of other experts in the field, like forensic psychologists, they came out with a response to this video. And they were not yeah. happy with what and, Ronson did. And his book, because the book was completely misleading and almost like yeah. degrading to psychologists. Exactly, that's what they said. He's. They said that Ronson took away from the complexity of not only psychopathy as a mental disorder, but all other mental health disorders in general, and also belittled those who worked with psychopaths mm-hmm. and those diagnosed with psychopathy. He basically insulted the entire field. Yeah. And that's not something you want to do. <laughs> Which I feel like people just like to do that to psychology as a field. <laughs> people toss around the word psychology all the time. I'll have like... English professors or like politics professors that like oh like the psychology of this and I was like you don't know what you're talking about no please stop throwing it around yeah this is a tangent but on TikTok it's so funny to see people be like psychology facts (laughs) I hate (laughs) those videos if someone's looking into your eye while they talk to you that means they're in love with you right like (laughs) it's like where was the psychology in that right can you show me the science behind that yeah no, it's really it's degrading really as a field. And it's like, it's so prevalent with psychopathy because people just think they're experts because they don't value the field of psychology. Right, right. Anyone anyone thinks that they're a psychology expert. Or mm-hmm. I hate when I tell someone I, uh, I'm a psychology major and they're like, oh, are you like... Are you going to psychoanalyze yeah, me? Yeah, are you psychoanalyzing me right now? No. I will. I'm not trained, okay? I'm not <laughs> trained. You. I also don't want to do that. So. <laughs> you're, not, you're not cool enough for me to do that. Right. Just kidding, but... No, it is, there's so many false stereotypes about psychology as a field, a lot of them being like, psychology is not an actual science. Right, which it absolutely is. Which it absolutely is. And like, granted, there are probably, within any field, some like, subfields are harder than others, like more math related or whatever. Right. But it's just like, it's really, really prevalent with psychopathy and how people view psychopathy in general. Yeah. Absolutely. The documentary we're going to be talking about is called Psychopath with Piers Morgan. And it's Piers basically going to interview (laughs) this kid named Paris Bennett. I call him a kid, but he's much older now. He's 25. Yeah, he's 25. But just to give... Or at the time of this interview. Yeah, at the time of the interview. And that was in 2019, right? Maybe. Yeah, I think so. Just to give everyone a little background to the case, on February 4th, 2007, Paris Bennett, age 13, murdered and sexually abused his four-year-old sister, Ella. Authorities found some semen on Ella and the bed where she was killed. That's how they know that she was sexually abused because that does not come out in this interview Mm, with Pierce. mm -hmm. Paris basically convinced the babysitter that they could go home early and then he entered Ella's room where she was sleeping, sexually abused her, and then stabbed her 17 times. Yeah. He also allegedly called a friend and talked for six minutes before calling 911. And when he did call 911, he self-reported that he, quote-unquote, thought he had killed someone and then faked doing CPR on his sister when he was on the phone with the emergency services. Yeah, like, I guess he was just walking around, just counting. And there's, like, forensic evidence of that. They don't explain what that is, but they they say they know that he didn't perform CPR. Forensic evidence proves this. Right. I'm like, okay. 
Yeah, and his mom was at like some. He she worked she at a restaurant, mm-hmm. so that's why there was a babysitter. Yeah, the first story that came out was that Paris was watching graphic violent porn like sadism, S and M, and bondage, and looked up some of that before he killed Ella to see it and get mad. Um. Then he claimed that he had hallucinated, and the hallucination made Ella look like a pumpkin-headed demon on fire. What the hell? Then, in the later years, changed his story to say that he killed his sister Ella so that she wouldn't tell about the abuse. And then the most recent story, and the I'd say the most widely believed story, yeah. is that he had planned, he premeditated the murder and considered murdering his mother too. And the babysitter. And the babysitter, but decided that killing his sister would cause his mom much more pain and suffering than if he killed his mom. Yeah, and they emphasized throughout the documentary that like she lost both her children at once. Right. And he took both of them away. Yeah. And then in 2011, Charity, that's Paris's mom, she came up with the Ella Foundation, which stands for Empathy, Love, Lessons, and Action to help people affected by violence, mental illness, and the criminal justice system. So that's just a little background to the case and to Paris and his mother, Charity. Mm-hmm. So for some reason, Piers Morgan... <laughs> yeah, like, Piers Morgan, a journalist. <laughs> like, for some reason takes up this case and is like, you know, I want to find out how... The minds of psychopaths really yeah, work. Yeah, how they really work. Because he is 100% the man to do so. Right, like, okay, <laughs> um, Pierce, sure. And basically, he, the way he frames this whole documentary and, like, how he's framing, how he's talking is just so leading and, like, yes. really trying to get that shock value. Yeah. Because he's, like, Paris Bennett, blah, blah, blah. You know, he has an IQ of 141. He's classified he's a as a genius. genius. And it's, like... It really implies this is like an implicit message of psychopaths are super smart and they're super, super calculated and cunning. Right. Which, to be fair, some people that are diagnosed with psychopathy, because Paris is diagnosed with psychopathy, they are very mm-hmm. intelligent. But that's, mm-hmm. again, not every psychopath. No, no. There is no one cut out classic psychopath, yeah. John Ronson. <laughs> and so the way that the whole documentary and like interview with Paris is set up is Piers Morgan goes into... This I'm, prison. Yeah, I'm assuming um, it's a correctional facility. Yeah, and like basically interviews Paris behind this like glass wall because Paris is deemed too violent. Which is true because in in the background, when I was reading about the background, Charity went to visit him one time and he like slammed wow. the table up against her and like held her there, brought it back and did it again. Damn. So that's why like Charity mm-hmm. one doesn't visit him anymore unless it's through glass, and that's exactly why Paris had to do it through yeah. the glass. So it's Pierce doing that, and then in one room is his mom, Charity, watching mm-hmm. the interview, and then in another room are two criminologists. One's Dr. Casey Jordan. She's a specialist in criminal behavior, and she has many accolades and achievements to her name. And the other is Mark Safrick, who had 20 years in the FBI profiling, quote-unquote, dangerous criminals. So the interview starts, well, before it really starts, there's this like shot of Paris going, since this interview is going to be done for ITV, would you like me to speak in Queen's English? Which is like already... Like kind of smug little smirk. Yeah, he him. thought it was so <laughs> yeah. funny too. And like, I bet Piers was like... Because he, he even like when he was saying that, like put on like a little fake British accent. Yeah. And like Piers was like not having it. No, he didn't think it was funny. And it's funny because like this might have been later in the interview or like a little after this moment, but the two... I'm going to say evaluators, meaning Casey Jordan and Mark Safrick, they were like, he's, like, this is a game to him. Like, he is going to try and, like, size you up. Right, the moment he sees you, he's, one, already researched you, and two, he's going to size you up way faster than you're going to be sizing him up. Yep. So it's kind of just this apparent game for Paris. Right. But basically, 
I think peers asked him, like, what is your goal? Yeah, like, like why are you doing Why this? did you say yes to this interview? And Paris, I think, makes a pretty... I know he's technically he's a diagnosed psychopath, but I think this is a pretty, like, important theme in general when you're yeah. looking at incarcerated populations or people who are diagnosed with mental illnesses. He was saying he doesn't want people to keep looking at him as this villain, that he doesn't want this one's mistake to define, define his, his life. life. Right. You know, he's served, he's been in prison for 12 years. At that point, he's that up point. for parole in 2027. Yeah. So. And so he kind of, I guess the whole thing was just to battle the false narratives that come with, you know, making a mistake Right. Like and that. he and Paris specifically like emphasizes this I think multiple times during the interview about how he mm-hmm. doesn't like one mistake shouldn't define his life. Although listen, this quote unquote mistake, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It's it, pretty bad. According to the evaluators, they're like it was very meticulously planned. Oh yeah. Like Sam mentioned, he was debating on he was weighing the options of killing the babysitter, killing the mom, or killing the sister. And, and when at 13 at, years old, convinced the babysitter yeah, to leave them alone. Yeah. yeah, and Ella's four at this time. Right. And Piers says something like, basically like reiterating what we just said and being like, is this correct? And Paris is like, yeah, that's a fair assessment. Yeah, Piers is like, is this a monstrous, horrible thing mm-hmm. that you've done? And he's like, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Yeah. Yes, it is. And the evaluators are like, normally when you're looking at someone describing their crime, a normal person would have some, some type sort of a tell. Some type that of they're tell feeling something. that they're like emotional or nervous or whatever. Right. And apparently Paris had a very flat affect. And meaning- they said like, he's talking about the, the murder of his sister the same way he would talk about like the book that he's reading. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just, it, there's no... It's just fact. It's There's no emotion right. with it. Right. It's like, this is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And there's and, no feeling connected to it. And it was interesting because he, I think when, like, Piers was trying to edge him on to be, like, to say how meticulous this plan was. And Paris made a comment, like, it wasn't actually that planned. Or, like, um, Yeah, I didn't have it, like, calculated at this minute I was going to do yes. this and this. And the, the experts, they shoot like, to the experts and they're like, he's lying. That's <laughs> such a lie. Like, yeah. he absolutely had this planned out. Which, yeah. I don't know how they know that. But, like, from what we know... It makes sense that this was, like, planned out if you mm-hmm. had to convince the babysitter to leave so that you'd be alone with your sister. If you knew that your, your mom, mom would be work. working. Yeah. Yeah. So very yeah. interesting. I think another interesting thing was, I think Piers must have said something like, did anyone tell you you, like, were kind of like a psychopath? And no one told him that. And it was just, I found it so ironic considering of our last episode when we were talking about Diane Emerson and it was a psychopath in our lives all the quote-unquote three quote-unquote psychopaths that she interviewed, they're like, yeah, like, I've had so many people in my life to say I'm a psychopath and, like, I have psychopathic traits, which is, like... The weird thing, too, is that they, like, they asked Charity the mom, they had someone who was, like, a family friend, and then they had some lady who was a news reporter for the the town where this happened, and they were all commenting, like... You know, the teachers never saw anything, and the teachers spend more time with the kids than anyone else does. And, you know, nobody nobody thought that he was, like, a psychopath when he was a child. Well, you want to know why? <laughs> you, you can't, can't do that! that. <laughs> you, can't you can't diagnose children with psychopathy, uh-uh. so there's not going to be, like, a sign. I also thought it was interesting. They showed a few clips, because there were a lot of, like, video clips of Paris playing with Ella when Ella was, like, a baby yeah. baby. And they repeatedly showed this clip of them. They're in this, like, little, like, inflatable thing. I don't know. And And Paris is, like, pretending to be, like, this character. I don't really remember what he says. But then he, like, pulls Ella, like, over his stomach and, like, says, I will kill you. 
and they play that multiple so times. So many times. To imply that, like, when he was, like, 10 or 11, he was already thinking about killing oh, her. Oh, my God. Which, it's that's, like, that's not it. You're, no. you're really misconstruing the yeah. story by playing that clip and playing it at least three times. If you're going to say that, every little kid that has a toy gun, toy Nerf gun, or is just shooting, pathologize that. Yeah, right. Pathologize like, that. No, it, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And honestly, I just, like, can't get over it. I'm just like, what is the point of this documentary? What is the point of Piers Morgan being the one interviewing this yeah, guy? Why? What are they supposed to take away from it? Like, I just feel like they're exploiting Ella's death. They're exploiting... And they're giving Paris... A platform. ...the attention that he wants. If he's actually creates. a psychopath, he's going to enjoy this. He's going to enjoy he, knowing he's Clearly he did enjoy it. Yeah, and it's just like, why is Piers Morgan doing it? I think that's yeah, the biggest I thing. Where I'm listen, like, journalists, are you? Journalists want to know all uh, the facts, but they, it's they like typically don't know no. the facts. They just kind of talk about things. Not to diss journalism, <laughs> but it's like, unfortunately, I think especially in this digital age, there's so many, such dissemination of false information. Right. And he's really just doing it. And I think more sort of for Piers Morgan, not just journalists in general. He's right. really doing it for that shock factor being like, oh, yeah. oh this will get yeah. the views. And he, like, has some ideas and, like, factual knowledge mm-hmm. of psychopathy, I would say. But that's only because he talked to the experts yeah. before he went in. But, like, he is really just looking for that sensational aspect mm-hmm. of, like, I'm interviewing a murderer. Yeah, and I think because he has a serial killer with... Piers Morgan. And he has killer women with yeah. Piers Morgan. And he says this at the end of the episode, but he's basically like, viewers are going to be so shocked to know that a man like this is, is, up, for parole. is up for parole. He could be out on the streets. I'm like, you're fear-mongering. Like, yeah. But also interesting that when it, he talks about that with the experts, they say that Paris started like acting on his like murderous Mm-hmm. Like inclinations at thirteen because he knew yeah. because he knew, <laughs> he knew that he... if it would have happened when he was eighteen, there would have been no chance he was getting yeah. out. So he knew that if he did it He's early lucky enough, he was a juvenile, right? He knew that if he did uh, it early enough, then he could be up for parole. Which honestly, and we'll probably talk about more in our next episode. But like the dangerous rhetoric of being like implying that he almost should have been tried as an adult basically yeah. for his crime, and yeah. I'm like that is so dangerous for like juvenile sentencing in general. Right. And considering I know recent laws regarding juvenile sentencing is that juveniles can now be given life without parole. Which juveniles? Juveniles. Whoa. Like, is this like nationwide or by state? Um, I think Louisiana did it. Oh. Um, but I know in I'm taking a punishment in public schools course and my professor was talking about how dangerous this oh, twenty five states it said. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. Really bad. Yeah. And it's rhetoric like this implying that he's dangerous as a kid no like not given any second chances and i'm not trying to minimize the crime like this was a gruesome murder of a four-year-old right that's so bad right again like, but for other cases that are less extreme mm-hmm. i no, it's very dangerous to imply that he should have been tried as adult practically right and also the implications of them like saying he calculated this early enough so that he could get out. How do they know? One, how do they know that? But two, also, they're making it seem like the moment he gets out, he's going to kill another person. Yep. Like Piers brings that up constantly. Multiple. And that's when that's when the experts say that they start to see Paris get frustrated. Yeah. I would get frustrated too. If I'm trying to make amends and really rebuild my life, but I have people like Piers Morgan and people like these evaluators telling me, I am nothing more than my mistake. I am nothing more than a psychopath. And also, what like, do you, you all think happen? I'm just sitting in here biding my time waiting to go out and yeah. kill someone else? Hello, have you heard of the self-fulfilling prophecy? Have you heard of labeling effects? Right. These are real, real ideas of 
if these people are like, yeah, you're going to do it. Yeah, you're going to do it. He's going to be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do it. Like, you really think right. that, that? You really think that low of me that I'm going to do it? And it I'll do it. Even, even Piers asked the question, like, do you care what I think about you? And Paris doesn't really answer that, but he says, I would like you to appreciate the fact that I'm willing to be honest with you. And Piers starts to interrupt him Ugh. and like, talking about, me, like, honesty. Yeah. And then Paris goes, I've just sat here and told you that, like, I'm far from normal. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if there's this spectrum of extremism, intensity, yeah. whatever, like, I, I know that I'm far from normal. And then says, I'm not protesting my innocence or downplaying the severity what I, of what I've done. Like, I'm being honest with you, which, again, maybe not completely honest in everything. But I think in that aspect, like, he, he didn't downplay yeah. any of the horrible things that he did. And even, like, like we said mm-hmm. earlier, agreed with Pierce that, like, it was a monstrous crime. Yeah. So, like, why do you have to keep implying mm-hmm. that, like... No, you're oh, gonna Paris kill. Paris is just waiting so yeah. he can go out and kill more people. Like it's really hard because I, it's like I want to believe him and give him a second chance yeah. of that he won't do this, but right. also he is a diagnosed psychopath. Right, and there's it's like how do you balance that line of taking precaution to make sure that he doesn't commit this crime again, but also right. like trusting his word to say yeah. that he can control it because he's been in a controlled environment. It's gonna be for twenty years before he's up for parole. So how do we know that when he is released, he won't go, like, back into that dark side that he says that he has and, like, do something bad again? Like, Paris says, I can tell you with complete conviction that I refuse to do anything like I did to my sister to anyone ever again. And if I do go down that dark path, I'm going to hurt myself. Mm. But it's hard to believe that when, not to say that there needs to be, like, a chance for him to prove himself, but because he's been in a controlled environment for so long, there's no way to know whether or not if that situation becomes available mm-hmm. that he won't take it yeah especially because he's diagnosed yeah it's just hard because it's like pathological lying is a criteria and like he could easily be manipulating everyone that he's saying this to but also it's like you again like you're saying not that we need to give him a chance but we just don't know right and but it appears hammers at fact yes. being like well, keep we saying, can't, we don't know for certain. Like, yeah, and keep saying, like, oh, that's the issue, isn't it? Yeah. Blah, blah. Like, He's so fucking annoying. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and another thing of it's just, I was just like, why did the mom think this was a good idea? Did she want, it's not that she wanted this for closure, this whole interview process, because. Right, because she's already written a memoir about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about that? I can. It's called How Now, Butterfly, a memoir of murder, survival, and transformation. And this book is literally about the mother's thoughts about this whole thing because she has forgiven Paris mm. and like still visits him. She talks a lot about unconditional love and oh, yes. that was one of the questions. Yes. That I Paris got asked. Paris and asked. Paris was like, I can't describe love. Like, do you do you think you're capable of love? He's like, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And the mom's like, I'm really offended. Like, yeah. I've stuck by his side this whole time. And right. he, because he, Paris was like, I don't have an example. I can't look at anything and say that's love. She's like, right. are you fucking kidding me? Like, I've been with you you killed my daughter and you're incarcerated as a psychopath, but I still love you. And the experts hammer in on that kind of too. They go, it's like asking a colorblind person to describe the color red. They can't do it. And Paris can't describe love because it's not something he can feel. Which I, I had know. a little bit of an issue no, with I that. Because that's like, I think oversimplifying yeah. and like really trying to like hammer in this idea of like a flat affect and like no emotions yeah i think they were the yeah i don't think i feel like they were kind of playing into a little bit of the sensationalism for pierce's interview (laughs) it's very interesting no and it's just like i totally understand 
writing about this was probably part of her grieving process and a yeah. way for her to cope. But at the same but time, making you are money off of it, profiting yeah. off your daughter's murder right. and your son's incarceration as a psychopath. And not only was it this documentary, there's been another documentary mm. that she has talked about this case in. Yeah, and like that's like. There's there were so many options like videos for us to choose from like especially when you look at Netflix there's so many like uh, Evil Genius The Staircase all these like court cases and it's just like it, it just really shock not shocks me but I just find it so interesting that these people are okay with like exploiting their children or yeah. like exploiting the yeah. murders for like lay people's consumption of this media right it's very very hard to understand I guess. And I guess maybe it's a little unfair for us to like Absolutely. make this claim about her because we don't know like no. what she it, was maybe experiencing. She genuinely but. wanted people to learn and understand what it's like to have your daughter taken away from you. How, as a mother, right. you can grieve with that. How, as a mother, you can still love your son or right. love your child after they've done something like that. But it's also but interesting. It's like, like, she's, she's gotten a lot of flack too. She has another son um, who's named Phoenix, and she's let Phoenix talk to Paris on the phone. Uh, they've that's never met. Really interesting. But right, she. Gets a lot of flack from other parents and experts and people saying you shouldn't be doing this because you're putting not only yourself again but your other son phoenix Mm -hmm. at extreme risk yeah because i'm assuming she still lives in the same place like paris knows where she lives that's okay that is the crazy (laughs) thing because piers talks to paris about like you know the experts have said that like your mom is in danger and they're telling her that she needs to change her name she needs to move she needs to do this first of all why is Pierce telling Paris that? Not that Paris probably wouldn't realize yeah. that that's probably going to happen, but yeah. you don't need to be telling him what what the experts are telling him I to do. I feel like he's trying to like get some like a reaction, yeah. which he didn't get. No. But also, Charity did make the concession that like she knows at some point she's going to have to choose between Paris and Phoenix, especially when it gets even closer to Paris getting out for parole. Mm-hmm. And she said she's going to choose Phoenix, and she will be as far away as possible from Paris. Get out cool. now! That's what I'm saying. It's cool that she like knows that and will say that, but is she just saying that for the documentary or is she actually going to do that? Is she just waiting until the last possible second? Right. Like, what's the point then? Yeah. Another interesting thing that Piers talks about when they're talking about this whole idea of like Paris biding time. First of all, Paris calls the, Paris calls the people uh, fools. <laughs> mm-hmm. He says, they're fools. I have nothing but scorn for them when he's talking about the people who think that he's just sitting in there biding his time. And he gets a little angry, I guess, when he talks about that. Again, like we said before, I would be getting angry if people were just like whittling me down to that one mistake. Granted, it is a yeah. huge mistake. Right. But it's like, you're not giving... I'm trying. Like, they, he talks about this whole redemption arc of like I'll forgive anyone like I like I hope people can forgive me he and, brings up this hypothetical yeah. of if he has a child one day and someone murders his child he wouldn't would be, only want to talk he to that person he would forgive them he wouldn't be upset which is only I feel like the experts were right when they said uh-huh. it's only playing into his like redemption arc and his like consideration yeah. for parole. Mm-hmm. I think it is a very few amount of people that can say that and actually be genuinely honest. Right, because even Pierce said like I think any normal father's reaction would be murderous. Yeah, yeah. And, and Pierce so- is like, well, I've already gone through this whole thing. Like I 
I would just forgive them. I just want to have a conversation That's with them. That's where I'm like, maybe. <laughs> right. Maybe he. Because he, he, he's Because he did. He's still in jail. So. <laughs> he's lived through this experience of murdering someone and being like. Put away. Put away. Yeah. And like, who knows? Maybe he found himself. But yeah, also, he know. is a diagnosed psychopath. Which right. Is why I'm like, uh. It's hard. It's it's so hard to like know what's fact from fiction. Absolutely. And it, it, I totally understand why the evaluators were like, this whole thing is fake. He's doing it for his parole hearing coming up. Like, this is all practice. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, maybe he is genuinely trying to have this, like, redemption to, like, show that he... Because how else is he going to get out if he, like, is okay without being like, no, like, I've, I want people to, like, right. forgive me and all right. that. Like, if he, were, if he were to say, if hypothetically, if someone murdered my daughter, I would be murderous, they would not let him out. Right, because they he's diagnosed and he's already in jail for murdering someone. Yeah, and I think he said that. He was just like, what do you want from me? Like, yeah. if I say the wrong answer, you're just going to pathologize right. me and, like, keep me in here. And you know what also didn't help with that? Mm. When he talked about what he was doing to spend the time, like, he was like, oh, I read books. And Pierce was like, oh, what are you reading? And he's like, I'm reading several things right now. But one of the things that he talks about is he's reading a bunch of different horror stories. Yeah, this did not help him. No, and... He said, I enjoy reading horror and dark fiction because it can be hard to read about mundane life and mundane concerns. Horror is almost soothing because it's written from someone who understands and can express and articulate how I felt. And the experts really grab onto that and say, he needs this for the thrill and the stimulation. Mm -hmm. What's to say when he goes out, he won't keep looking for that thrill and stimulation through horror novels. He's going to take it out. And, like, they said something like, if someone else can think these dark things, it basically validates his It validates him. Yeah, it makes him feel like he's more normal. Doesn't make him feel so alone. Yeah. And just, like, monstrous, I guess. Yeah. So that definitely didn't help his case. No. But also they... Again, pathologizing every little thing. Mm-hmm. I get that it's a little concerning that someone who murdered their four-year-old sister enjoys and finds horror novels soothing. I like horror. I wouldn't say they're soothing. Right. But I like them. Right. I like reading them too. Is that like? Yeah. Let's, no. It's it doesn't track. But also, I get where their concern is coming from. But I feel like they didn't need to add that no. in there to like dehumanize and monstrosize yeah. Paris even more. Speaking of dehumanizing, I think the mom. Granted, she does some weird things. She does a great job at humanizing him. Yes. Because in the beginning, Pierce is like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? What do you expect? How is he going to act? And how should I act towards him? And she's like, well, he's a human. Right. Like, treat him like a human being and he'll treat you the same. Be nice. Be courteous. He's going to be nice. He's going to be courteous. He's charming. Like, Yeah. So I think she does a great job in that. Yeah. But it is, I feel like this whole interview thing kind of puts him as this spectacle, as psychology oh, and mental illness. As and it spectacle. doesn't help that he's like behind the glass. It, nope. It's like someone in a zoo. Yep. Yep. That's exactly what it's I was like thinking. It's like animals in the zoo, you know, you're just looking mm-hmm. at them through this. Yeah. I didn't like wall. that, which, yeah. but I like understand. I understand why, but it, it adds to that subconscious or implicit mm-hmm. idea that like these people are spectacles. Yeah. Yeah. They're not real. Yeah. It, they put some distance between yeah. the two. Pierce kind of ends the interview. He's told he has like five minutes left. He ends the interview. He pulls out a picture of Mm -hmm. Ella and shows it to Paris and asks Paris what he feels when he sees it. And Paris doesn't really answer that question, but he says, 
I feel like I don't deserve to see that picture. He says, I'm the reason why that every picture of my sister is only her as a girl. There's no pictures of her mm -hmm. at five, six, or seven. Like, I know that I'm the reason, and I feel like I don't deserve to see that picture. I thought that was a great answer. I did too, <laughs> but here's the other thing. Every answer that Paris gave in this entire interview, Piers would ask a question, he'd wait, mm. and then he'd start answering, which is why when Piers interrupted him, he got a little bit yeah. upset because he is very articulate, yeah. had very seemingly prepared answers because he Fair. figured he knew what Piers was going to ask. I don't know. I I mean, to give benefit of the doubt, I would say I'm a very reserved. I like to think before I speak. Oh, absolutely. Me so too. So it's like, I, I didn't, again, like that they were like, he, he has right. to wait. The experts were pathologizing that and saying, he waits. He yeah. already knows what he's going to say. Uh, he's practiced maybe these Maybe he's answers. fucking thinking because you're going to freaking pathologize exactly, any mistake exactly. or any hint of anger or whatever. Exactly. But again, we could be wrong. We are right. not. We're not experts. We're not experts <laughs> at all. They are, but yep. it did kind of play into that sensationalism mm -hmm. of pathologizing every little thing he does. Mm -hmm. And then as, like, the cameras were supposed to be, like, cut. Yeah, he, their interview like, was supposed to be over. Says something to Piers being like, I was serious when I told you I would never do something like that again. And that this mistake doesn't define me, you know, like... This interview is a way for me to gain some type of power over myself yeah. and like... He just kind of emphasizes the idea that like he wasn't lying to peers when he was saying what he was saying and that he like can control himself and one way that he thinks is helping him learn how to do that is by having these yeah. interviews and talking about what happened. Which I thought was pretty interesting, but again, yeah. who knows what he's thinking. Right. And, you know, he was very courteous at the beginning and the end. Like, Piers said, you know, thank you for doing this. And he goes, of course, like, no problem. Mm -hmm. And Piers, you know, at the end is like, thank you for, like, speaking to me and, like, doing this interview. And he's like, like, absolutely, like, no problem. Yeah. No. Very courteous. Very chill. Yeah. And then it kind of ends with the evaluators talking. And I think the woman was just like, you know, psychopathy can't be cured. He will not. Like, get out, he will not change. He can only be managed, which I didn't like the way no, she said that. No, because it's also implying that, like, psychopathy isn't treatable, mm -hmm. and there's a whole host of issues mm -hmm. with that idea. And it kind of just played into yeah. that, I think. Contrary to how the mom was really humanizing, I felt like the evaluators were pretty dehumanizing, dehumanizing. and being like, he should not get out. And they made this comment of how, which I think she has some point to, but also considering that he was so young, she basically says that, you should not be able to age out of psychopathy. Yeah, which is interesting because in my forensic psychology class, we're talking about recidivism mm -hmm. and some of like the different factors that contribute to like a higher or lower like risk assessment for recidivism. And one of the things is age. They, mm. it's it's like been researched that the older you get, the less likely you're gonna be yeah. to like Recidivate. do. Yeah, and I guess she. It's fair for her to say that like psych psychopaths are in like a different class. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like there is something to say about age. Yeah. Like the older you get, and he's been, he's going to be incarcerated for over 20 years before he can like get out. Yeah. So I feel like there's something maybe to that idea. Yeah. But I don't know why she had to completely shut it down. I didn't really, because one, that would imply that at 13 when he was, we don't really know actually what age he was diagnosed with psychopathy. Do no, we? we don't know that. No. So like, or incarcerated, like when that happened. Yeah. But it seemed like she was implying that once you are kind of basically diagnosed with psychopathy you should not be let out right there's no 
coming like, back. No. There's no no redeemable qualities. No. And it's just like again reinforcing this idea that psychopaths are dangerous people and they should always they should stay incarcerated and he needs to be kept in a cage because who knows what he's gonna do. Which like I get that as a fear and it's a totally valid fear, but it's also just so harmful in terms of like treating psychopathy and humanizing these people. So I found issue with that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Stay tuned for next week where we will be wrapping up our series on psychopathy and discussing some of the macro consequences for such inaccurate media portrayals.